there was just no other choice. Like my parents needed to leave for work at six in the morning and school didn't start till whatever, eight or nine. And you just know that that's what you have to do. I mean, I can't tell you I ate the best breakfasts <laughs> in the morning <laughs> or when I came home, my afternoon snack was usually a gallon of ice cream or, you know, chips, whatever was kind of laying around. So there's definitely things that weren't as healthy. I, I missed school a lot because I overslept and missed my alarm and would be chasing the bus halfway down <laughs> the street. Um, so, you know, there's definitely some bumps along the road. But overall, it actually, looking back, was probably some of the best experience because you have just this freedom and this independence and you're not really relying. You can't, there's not somebody to rely on. If you want to eat, you have to go figure out how to eat. You have, you know, if you miss your bus, you're in trouble. There's nobody to call to drive you. You forget a book. You're just without a book or you forget a lunch. And so there's a lot of just responsibility and ownership that just starts really, really young. Hello and welcome everyone. I am Jory Calkins, the founder and CEO of Enduring Companies and the host of Built to Outlast, a podcast and community for business builders by business builders. We explore the journeys and companies of business builders in America with a focus on traditional small to mid-sized business niches and the strategies which enable them to endure and flourish. If you are building a business now or aspire to build one in the future, this is for you. To join the Built to Outlast community and access episodes, show notes, and other community resources to support your journey, please visit builttooutlast.com. If you have or know a business that may be sold and care who the buyer is, or if you want to buy or build a business and care who you do it with, please visit enduring.co to learn more about us, our long-term approach, and our holding company. Welcome everyone for today. We are speaking with Irina Novoselsky, who's a friend and also the former CEO of Career Builder. Irina, welcome to the show. Good to be here, Jory. I know a lot about your background and story, but many people don't. And I think that would be a really fun and interesting place to start. Before we go into career and all that sort of stuff, share a little bit about who you are, where you're from, you know, personal history, uh, and that all kind of naturally lead into the, uh, some of the other stuff. It's funny, my most of my childhood growing up, I would tell people that I am Russian. And I would never really spend the time to delineate because when you're, when you're a young kid and explaining to teachers and kids in school, you know, what it means you're from Ukraine and it's from the Soviet Union, it would get so complicated that <laughs> a few years in, you just kind of stop and you're like, I'm Russian and that, that just going with that, it's easy to understand. And obviously with all the world events that have been happening over the last several months, not, not only am I proud to be American, but my Ukrainian pride has definitely come to the forefront. But we came here uh, actually as refugees in the late 80s. At that time, you weren't able to leave with a lot of things or money or many other items that you worked for your whole life. And so we came here with about $270 and landed in JFK through several different countries. Took us a few months to get here, but started there and lived in several different places in New York until made my way to New Jersey and grew up in New Jersey. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, you talk about how childhood influences your life and it definitely, it definitely influenced the first career I went into. So can you uh, give a little bit more color on who you said we, we came here. So who's we, can you describe? Yeah, it was my parents and myself, which it's funny at the time, I didn't even fully appreciate how crazy you have to be to be an immigrant in, in some way, right? because you are taking this 
this chance without knowing the language, without knowing at all what's on the other other side. And you're coming by yourself. With it. It's just so vulnerable and lonely. And my parents were doing it in their 50s, which is a whole different set of problems. And my my dad is actually a has a PhD in engineering and a really gifted engineer. My mom's a chemist, but we came in the 80s during a recession. And one of the interesting things, the advice that my dad actually got when he was trying to find a job and he was, he sent out 400 resumes at the time on typewriters that I would lick the envelopes for and and help send out. And one of the things that he got told, because he kept getting rejected and they told him to take his PhD status off his resume, take his master's off. And then that helped and he got, finally got a job and it changed the course of our whole family's life. And his first job was $26,000 a year. And I remember how excited we were for that paycheck. It was, it was probably more than they've ever made in, in the Soviet Union. Wow. What was the context behind pulling the PhD off the resume? Is that people thought he was overqualified or just didn't fit? Yeah, or what, overqualified. What was that? And because it was a recession, people thought that he would want more money. And at that time we were just willing and, you know, in, in a place where it was just, he needed a job and it worked out really well because all of a sudden they didn't think that they couldn't afford him. And so he was able to kind of get it and then work his way up within the organization. But, you know, it just talks to how getting advice from right people is so important at every point in your life. Yeah, for sure. I know there is a, like a toast you all do once a year that you don't know that I know this, but in research, in doing some research for this conversation, found that out. Can you, and so I like, this is new to me too, but can you describe what that is? Cause I think that that's a, seemed like a pretty cool thing. There's just such a pride and, and it's, it's even hard to explain, but you know, my mom wanted to be a doctor in the Soviet Union and that just wasn't open to her at that time. And so coming here, the one thing my parents told me my whole life was you could do anything you want to do. You could be anything you want to be. This is America. It's the land of meritocracy. If you work hard and put your mind to it, you can do it. And even when we didn't have much at all, you were just so grateful that you can go to stores and there was food on shelves that you could buy. You know, that if you worked really hard, you can get money to go get a better life and do all these things. And so every year from the very first year that we came here, we came here on December 13th we would host to America. And it was kind of just like our big celebration. We would, you know, at the time when we, we were living not on much at all. When we came here the first year, my mom would go and spend money on getting a cake, which was essentially our, our week's food allowance, but to celebrate being here was just such a big deal. And so every year on December 13th, it's a little toast to America. That's awesome. I'm going to send you a text on December 13th. Honestly, it makes it, it would be the most amazing text. It's like better than a birthday text. Cause you know, also I, I feel like there's so much that, and it's easy to take things, good things for granted, right? Every year that I, I'm here, I kind of take a little bit of what this country offers for granted. And it's really hard not to, but then you see what's happening in Ukraine and especially how close to home it hits for me that you just have such gratitude that if you, you know, I had no connections, no network. And if you work hard, and you get good grades, and you study, and you do all these things, that you can have a path of, of getting to the places you want to. And in a lot of countries, no matter how hard you study, no matter how hard you work, no matter how hard you do these things, it's just not available to you. doesn't mean it's perfect here. It doesn't mean there's not more we could be doing, but it is an amazing start. Yeah. So that's a great way to jump into 
like your path. So, t- so you're here, you're living in New Jersey. Your father gets, a, he pulls his PhD off his resume, gets, a, gets a, you know, a job and is willing to work and, you know, roll the tape forward two years or 10 years or however much you want. But, you know, so, so take me down the path of Irina, you know, growing up from that point and, and going forward. So I happened to grow up in this development that was pretty enclosed. Um, and I, I learned this term later on in life, but I, I, I think it's called latchkey kids, where your parents leave for work before you do <laughs> and you have to like figure out how to you know make yourself breakfast, leave and go to school and come back again. And so I was on my own a lot uh, from a pretty young age and really grateful that we were in this this development that allowed me to really do that and let my parents more or less feel safe. So the development allowed me to have a lot of freedom, even though, you know, obviously my parents couldn't afford daycare before or after they left for work, but it allowed me to have just creativity and independence. And so what ages is that started, you know, for a long time, I wouldn't admit this because my parents were so scared that somebody would come and take <laughs> me away. Um, that I remember you know, telling whoever asked that I had a grandma home and I had no grandparents. They died way before <laughs> it was even an option. But it started probably around age five. Wow. So I just dropped our newly minted five-year-old. His birthday was on Friday off at kindergarten. And I could not imagine. I mean, I'm sure he'd survive and I, sh- you know, maybe should just unshackle him from my concerns. But like <laughs> five-year-old's pretty young. It, it's young, but kids are really smart and resourceful and they adapt to the environment that they're in, I find. And there was just no other choice. Like my parents needed to leave for work at six in the morning and school didn't start till whatever, eight or nine. And you just know that that's what you have to do. I mean, I can't tell you I ate the best breakfasts (laughs) in the morning (laughs) or when I came home, my afternoon snack was usually a gallon of ice cream or, you know, chips, whatever was kind of laying around. So there's definitely things that weren't as healthy. I I missed school a lot because I overslept and missed my alarm and would be chasing the bus halfway down the street. (laughs) Um, So, you know, there's definitely some bumps along the road. But overall, it actually, looking back, was probably some of the best experience because you have just this freedom and this independence and you're not really relying. You can't. There's not somebody to rely on. If you want to eat, you have to go figure out how to eat. You have, you know, if you miss your bus, you're in trouble. There's nobody to call to drive you. You forget a book. You're just without a book or you forget a lunch. And so there's a lot of just responsibility and ownership that just starts really, really young. But the benefit of it too is I just had all this time and there's things you want to do to stay occupied. And so obviously I would play with friends, but I would start these businesses around my development and you know make some pocket money because when you're in school, you want to be able to buy the candy or, or whatever little thing you have. And I, there's no way I was going home to ask my parents for money for that, right? That was just not an option. So tell me, tell me about some of those businesses. Do you remember what, what was your first or, you know, your favorite of those? There was a few. There was a really good moneymaker that almost got me kicked out of school. I don't know if you remember, do you remember Airheads, Warheads? Uh, what are they called? The, the sour kind of patched kids, yeah. but not that. And so at the time we would go to Sam's Club and I would have my mom buy a lot of them. And then I would come to school and I would, they came like 10 in a, in a pack and I would rip them out and sell them for like 10 cents a piece or a quarter a piece or whatever to like kids in, in the cafeteria. 
until the administration at the time caught wind of this and basically told me you can't have an enterprise on school grounds during school hours. But that one, I was probably taking home $20 a week, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it was an insane amount of money. Yeah. Some good pricing arbitrage there. Yeah. And it was, it was tw- you know, I was 12 years old at the time or something, 11. The other one that was really good, that's when I was probably seven or eight. The development used to have a yard sale every year. And so I would bike around with waters and sell them for like a dollar a piece. And so I used to make over a hundred dollars in one in one day. Um, that was a pretty good fill the piggy bank day. I used to wash cars and got got the kids, the local kids, in on it, where I would kind of help organize it um, and get a small cut, and then they would get a bigger cut. So they were really happy. I mean, you name it, I I've done it. it, it <laughs> I used there was like these big. My mom called them dust collectors, like these beautiful kind of big dusty flowers, I would have my dad go cut them and then I would walk around and sell them. I mean, just in hindsight, you think about, I would just come back when it was dark and, you know, walk around to strangers' homes. And I don't know how much you would be okay doing that these days anymore, but. Yeah, it's amazing. I'm learning. So I, we've known each other for, I don't know how many years, but like this is all new information. To me, so I this never is awesome. talk about this. This is <laughs> <Ever>. great. <laughs> Well, it's awesome. And I, like, to, you know, to be honest, knowing you in a professional context and friends as well, like this, to me, feels like a lot of the foundation for your personality, which, you know, we'll talk about some of your work stuff in a bit, but like extreme ownership, independence, like, you know, there, there's a lot of stuff here that it's pretty foundational to, I think, who you are. So appreciate you sharing it. Yeah. Okay, you're hustling around the, you know, the development where you're living. But then at some point, you're stopped in high school, you run out of time. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so you're getting to high school. And then take me from high school to, you know, at some point, you ended up in New York City. Yeah, so high school. And again, when you come from this immigrant home, and, you know, one of the things that I just appreciate so much is, there's so much you don't know. So thankfully I, I had, you know, very highly educated parents. Um, you know, I mentioned my dad was an engineer. He he got patents in America. I mean, they obviously had a lot of schooling, but they didn't understand the American system of how important, what university you go to, or how do you get into a university getting, you know, taking the FATs and how the grade system works to get into all of that. And so that just isn't something that I was raised it in my home, right? I knew that you had to work hard, study hard, and the rest would happen. But figuring out the logistics of how it actually worked was a whole process in itself. And I happened to go to a high school that, you know, wasn't ranked so well, nationally pretty low ranked, actually. But it had a lot of different activities for those that wanted to take advantage of it. So it was about a 1000 people per class. So uh, there's four grades. So it was a really big high school with a lot of a lot of kids, but I just got into sports, thankfully, and got into tennis and was able to somehow get on the varsity team freshman year. And that took up a ton of time and learned that SATs are important. Uh, so started taking prep classes sophomore year or whatever it is and got good grades. And so that helped and really started taking on jobs that I could learn things. I knew I liked business, but I didn't know what that meant. It was mostly just because of 
the books I would read growing up or, you know, the things I was just naturally drawn to from these kind of money-making ventures. And so I started taking accounting classes in school and we had, um, they weren't really finance classes, but we had business classes, et cetera. And I pretty much early junior year realized that if I need, if I wanted to go to school, I needed to finance my own education. And so I started working summers and during the school and random accounting firms or just getting tutoring jobs, whatever I I could get to start hoarding some, some dollars. And then realizing that was just not going to even be close to enough. And that's when I really realized I had to go to school in a city that would let me work full time. And I didn't really know much about how the college and university system worked. And so I pulled whatever report at the time was for business schools. And they had a list of kind of the top five undergraduate business schools. And NYU Stern was on that list. And it was 45 minutes from home. And I figured, okay, this works great. (laughs) So I did early admission there. And I can't actually tell you if this is reality or this is just how I remember it. But I'm pretty sure this is the case. Um, on December 13th, I got my early admission response that I got no in. Way. And it was awesome. The yeah. Toast to America Day? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's pretty yeah. cool. And I'm 95% Now I definitely need to text sure. you. <laughs> um, and so it kind Just of felt... Say it with confidence and I'll believe you. Yeah, honestly, I believe it. I've been, I've been believing it for a while. But it's just interesting. I look back on that whole college experience and I remember... I somehow either a guidance counselor or somebody uh, had me apply to one of the Ivies that was near home. I won't say which one. And I got called in for an interview and my dad drove me. It was probably an hour and a half away. And we pull up to see the largest house we have ever seen in our life. And we walk in and it was this amazing black couple. She was a doctor or a lawyer. He was a businessman and they had the most perfect children. And I remember going into their home and I remember thinking, oh my God, somebody can live like this. Like, this is just so incredible. And I wore a suit. I remember I was like 17 years old or whatever. We went and got my suit. We got shoes from like Payless or something. And I remember her asking me these questions and she took me to her office and her office was as big as our entire house. So to say I was kind of overwhelmed and just felt uncomfortable the whole time. And I remember my dad was going to sit in the car and they were just so nice. They came to him and said, come on in. And I was like, oh my gosh. Also as an immigrant kid, your parents speak with an accent. You're constantly trying to just make sure things go well, that you're you're like, I'm going to leave and leave this on its own. How is this going to work? And I just remember having this fully outer body experience of just having, she was so kind. And from her perspective, she was probably thinking this, this girl just has no idea what this interview is because I remember her (laughs) asking me these questions and I would just answer them as honestly as I could. And, you know, the older you get, you realize there's these prep, there's these consultants, there's this, all this work that goes into how to answer these questions the right way. But when you just don't know, you don't know. But it was such a a moment in time where I remember we got back in the car and I remember thinking, one day I want to own a house like that, you know? So they don't know the the impact they had on us, but we talked about it for a very, very long time after. Wow. Well, it's it's amazing all these kind of like formative memories that have stuck with you and seem like 
signpost is not the right descriptor, but like indication lights along your path. So it's it's cool to hear. I appreciate you sharing it. It's so important to have, and you nailed it, goalposts. Sometimes you don't even know what how big you should be dreaming or how, how big of a goal you should have. And sometimes seeing it is just so helpful. But so yeah, so from there, I went to NYU undergrad. And it's funny, I, I got in full ride to uh, a pretty good school in, in New Jersey. And they were actually going to pay me to go to school and for my housing. And it was one of the very few times I, I really disagreed with my parents and they disagreed with me. They were convinced that that was the right thing to do. How did that go? Uh, you know, w- thankfully, I, I have just amazing parents that is a lot of conversational um, it wasn't where parents your child. It was always just in every environment. And mostly probably because I earned that right, just being home alone and doing all these things on my own. But they really went to the mat. They were like, you're making a, dis- a really bad decision here. Uh, I think Stern at that time was everything in $60,000 a year or s- something absurd. It must have, it might have been even more versus getting a full ride and someone paying you to go to school which I, I can't even explain at the time to think of that kind of money was just an, an impossibility. But I just knew, Jory, that if I, I knew I could not do what I needed to do if I went to the full ride. I just knew I needed to be in New York. And, you know, they, they basically said, we'll support you. We don't agree, but we'll support you. And there's a little luck on our side. I don't know if you remember this, but in early 2000s, that's before the financial crisis, they would be giving out a lot of credit cards at interest-free rates. It sounds sounds about right, right before the crisis. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason that happened, but my, and I, I can't believe I'm even sharing this, but my dad and I probably figured out this system. We had, I don't know, maybe 20 cards running at one point, because one of the things when you, I got a ton of scholarships, a lot, I applied probably to 150 and I got like 70 different scholarships ranging from like $200 to thousands of dollars. So that took care of half of it. I got some grants, but not a ton. And then also you have to live and pay for expenses. And it's just, ex- it's expensive to live in the city. And so Every semester, I was having trouble making ends meet between my jobs and between all this. I just some there were some semesters that were getting close where I just I couldn't connect the dots. And we got we we literally had this revolver moving of about eighteen to twenty credit cards where we would take you know a few thousand at a time at zero percent interest, and then six months in the interest started, so we would take a new card out, pay that card off and just keep the system moving. And we had this all in Excel spreadsheets with reminders to God forbid not miss a day because the missing a day was very expensive. And, you know, thankfully we were able to kind of, I ended up going into finance and I was able to get a good bonus that I was able to pay this all off before, before the financial crisis. But I ended up paying very, very little in interest. I managed to go to college almost interest free with all the debt. That's amazing. Very cool to hear that story. And also for your parents to have the trust in you to let you make and own that decision and then support you in that decision is pretty incredible. I, this is you know, by no means the same situation or magnitude, but I had similar experience with my parents where you know, I said I wanted to go to this school and you know, I, they probably could have had a more, more firm no, but they kind of let me make my own decision and Turns out it was, you know, not the right decision, but then I quickly realized that and switched back a year later and, you know, it all worked out fine. But, 
you know, I think their trust in me allowed me to really feel ownership over that decision. And also in my case, you know, probably a mistake, but, you know, I was able to take responsibility for it and, and figure it out. So maybe it was anyway, a mistake I, in I mind too. I'll to... never know. <laughs> um, but you know, it's funny you said that because one of the things that, and, you know, I think both of us are gifted with amazing parents and that, that is really a lottery that you win and it's luck. But one of the things that they, they say a lot is your children are not you. They say this to me all the time where, you know, children are their own independent people. And it's hard when you're not in the person's shoes, whether they are a quote unquote child or not, to really know what it is that's right for them. You know, sometimes you know better for yourself. Yeah. And it takes a lot of trust in your child to do that too, right? Because it's not without at least perceived risk, but it's always a balance. So you, you mentioned, you know, working in finance, which is where you and I connected originally. Now that we know the foundation of Irina, let's talk through a little bit more of the kind of career and, and that, that side of things. So what, so you're at NYU, you're um, starting to work in finance. What were you doing? And, you know, how does that all fit together um, with the journey that you've, you've been on? I had a very different college experience than I think people think about when they think college experience. For me, it was, I basically had to work full time and make sure I did enough college that it can be considered a full time and then get just enough good grades so that a lot of my scholarships had stipulations that I would lose them if they went underneath a 3.8 GPA. And so I was basically solving for 3.8. That that was it. How do I work to make the money I need maximum amount of hours and go to school the minimum amount of hours that I can still be considered full time and get a three eight. And so I really thread that needle. I was able to work three days a week and go to school two days a week and just pack all my classes in and started looking for jobs in finance to just learn. And, and really finance came about two ways in that somebody told me, and specifically banking, which I started actually in the New York Stock Exchange floor. And then I don't know if it was friends or social group, but basically, you know, going to undergrad business school, you learn that investment banking pays well. And if you're good at math, that's a good place to go, even though in reality, you don't really use that much math, maybe a little algebra, but not really. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That's what Excel, that's all been outsourced to Excel. Yeah, it's outsourced to Excel. You learn how to use Excel. But my, my, one of my first jobs when I was, I think, a senior in high school going to be a freshman, or maybe it was ready was a freshman, was on the actual stock exchange floor back when they had market makers. And I was in the garage, which is like that back room. And I mean, I walked in as basically there was hundreds and hundreds of very loud, high energy men. And I was the only female, you know, maybe there was one somewhere else. But it, it was a pretty traumatizing experience to just walk <laughs> into the building and just to get to where you needed to get to. And then I, I eventually found the back door that I could not have to go through that whole building and, and walk in the side door. But that was also a really just eye-opening experience on what was happening. And this was before a lot of the electronic trading really took over. And you just really see a whole different world. 
Were you like running tickets back and forth or what What were you doing? Basically, I mean, really, really junior stuff. I mean, lunch got delivered, so I wasn't even getting lunch. It, <laughs> you just, um, you clear, You they taught you how to use the computer and you helped clear trades and, you know, nothing was really trusted to me that required any kind of thinking or, you know, there was not mistakes I could have made. But you learn and there's, you know, some really good guys and it was guys that took the time to kind of explain how the business worked and what happened. And so from there, I actually moved upstairs, quote unquote, upstairs into um, their analyst kind of group and more on the investing side and learned a little bit more there about earning calls and what does it mean when a, you know, a stock releases earnings and stock market and just more about the market in general, realized that that's not really something that I have a lot of interest in. And at the time it paid minimum wage. And so I needed a different job fast. Um, cause at $5 and 15 cents, I was, I was not making my payments that needed to get made. And I got a job at Maureen Stanley actually in the back office in their control group. And it paid $16 and change. And I didn't really care what I had to do in this back office. I was figuring like, you need me to type in numbers. I'll type in numbers. I'll do data entry. I don't really care. And it was a terrible job, mostly because there was just very little initiative and very little ownership. And whenever you were done with your job, you just kind of had to sit there and wait till you got more. And I wanted to learn and keep doing more and add value. And so I, I would get frustrated and I started really networking internally within Morgan Stanley to try to figure out, to learn more about this investment banking group that I heard so much about. And at this point, I think I was a freshman, maybe an early sophomore, I don't remember, and emailed a bunch of people at Morgan Stanley asking them for coffee. And, you know, one of the things that I just think is is so important, and I only realized this later on that I was doing, but there's just this ignorance to it where you just didn't know that's not something you don't do. And so I did it until somebody reached out and said, yeah, sure. Um, why don't you have dinner with, you know, a VP of, in my group or coffee rather, sorry, uh, with a VP in my group. And I did. That's awesome. And yeah, one thing you led to another and miss every later, shot you don't take. Right. Yeah. And it ended up at the time when I had coffee with him, we were chatting and by the end, I guess he thought I graduated college and it came out that I, I didn't. And he was, and he was basically like, we, we can't hire you. <laughs> you need a degree um, <laughs> or wait till you're a junior or something, right. To do the summer internship program. And so I was so defeated, Jory. I just like literally imagine like taking your toys and just going home. And six months later, he emailed me and said, actually, we're trying this new thing. And it's a sophomore rotation summer investment banking program. Why don't you apply? And they took 10 kids at the time or something. And I applied and I got it. And I basically did not let Morgan Stanley let me go since then. So when my rotation ended, I, I came back and I said, let me work during the summer. You've now seen me. Let me work during the year. You've seen me during the summer. Let me just stay here. And that was the beginning. So then I started working there full time during school and it ended up being such a savior for me because it was honestly the only way I was able to finish college was just working there. So this is where our stories crossed over just for anyone, you know, for folks listening. So I, I 
started, I, I don't remember exactly when, but some somewhere in the 2000s in Morgan Stanley in one of the banking groups uh, in, in the M&A group, mergers and acquisitions. And I think I was on my first day, I sat down, I was just trying to like keep my head down at my desk. And you, Irina, who is like the queen bee of the group, you know, walks over and just, I think you either sat down next to me or just like plopped yourself down and said, you know, who are you? Well, you know, welcome. And who the heck are you? <laughs> Basically, not in those words. And I was like, wow, th- this is fun. And uh, But you were very kind about it. And uh, we've obviously become uh, great friends since. So, yeah. And it was, you know, Morgan Stanley was just a really special place to me. The gratitude I just felt of being able to have a job there and seeing how, you know, because I was there so much, the MDs would take me to meetings if I did the work. And that just wasn't normal. And I would get to sit there in these rooms with all of these just really successful people listening to what they were talking about. And, you know, you maybe understand some of it, but you obviously don't understand all of it. And it was, it's just an, it was an incredible experience or even, uh, you know, what to where to work. I just, I came from such a different world that I, I didn't even know a world like this existed. And it was just an incredible learning experience. And I just, I had, I have some, such gratitude and, you know, similar to you, most of my friends are from Morgan Stanley. And so when I would see a new face, I I was very interested in who are you? Tell me about yourself. <laughs> how do I, how do I <laughs> learn about you? Because again, I knew most of the people there. And so, um, mostly from just spending so much time on, on those floors, but, um, yeah, I ended up meeting my husband at Morgan Stanley. And so it brought a lot of good things into my life. Yeah, I see a very, this is going to be a loose analogy, but kind of a similar analogy or, or kind of some similarities between that community you grew up in and just started like getting out there and meeting people and selling waters or warheads or whatever. And then, you know, it feels like Morgan Stanley is kind of a similar, like the, your, you know, kind of domain and you're just growing and expanding and meeting people in your I love kind of in that. your area. Jory, so, I that, never ever thought of that analogy, but you're so right because I I had kind of this freedom to move across these different floors and learn about these different groups and meet these interesting people and come across these different businesses and and learn. And it was just this endless opportunity of learning. And and you're right, it was in this kind of safe space because I I wasn't really a full time person. I mean, I was, but I wasn't. And there's this freedom you have when you're really early in your career and, you know, hopefully you maintain that throughout your career, but especially when you have it in college and early on is that there is just very low expectations and you're encouraged. Your kind of main job is to ask questions and to learn. And it's a really freeing space. If you kind of think that there's no dumb questions and you kind of fully take advantage of that to ask and to learn and you get insight into things that I think as you get older, you get a little bit more self-conscious. Hopefully you don't, but I still ask plenty of stupid questions. So yeah. So do I, Um, but I think we're missing that. We probably should stop. We're missing some sort of social gene, I think. (laughs) Yeah. Which has its negatives too, for me, at least I don't know about for you, but it was, it was a a really just special time. Yeah. I'm thinking as a specific example of the analogy of you, like knocking on people's doors in your community with you just like sending someone a cold email within Morgan Stanley, right? Like it's almost the same exact thing. It's kind of a little, you know, socially weird. Yeah, I would go and knock on empty doors and ask them, what are you working on? Can I help you? Is there anything I could be helpful with? 
And I just remember some of them looked at me with this puzzle of why, why are you bothering me? And then it kind of <laughs> hit them and they're like, yeah, you know what? Fine. If you want to help do this, nobody wants to do this grunt work or here's some piece of work you can do. And I would take it. That's awesome. So you've got, so you're, you've now kind of like expanded within your second domain at Morgan Stanley. And, and then you decided, you know, at some point that you wanted to move on to your next domain or the next part of your journey. So tell me about what was, what was next and what was that decision like and why and where did you end up and I'll shut up and let you keep talking. No. So businesses were just always really important to me. And from a young age, I, I really thought I wanted to be an operator, but you don't really know what that means. And in investment banking, you get just access to all these different companies and you start to interact with management teams. So you start to kind of understand that a little bit more. And I just finished paying off my debt. And I really, financial independence was really important to me. And then also understanding businesses a little deeper was just really important to me. It was starting to kind of come together and just really wanted to learn. And I, given kind of my previous market exposure experience, I knew I didn't want to go on to the, the public market side. And so on the private equity side, it was actually really interesting to me. You learn about businesses, you invest, you see how they operate, they work with management teams, and it really just hit all cylinders. And my decision criteria at the time was really twofold. One, most of the big private equity firms that I was talking with at the time mandated you to go back to get your MBA after two years. And I just finished paying off my debt. I just graduated undergrad business school. I was not going back to get more debt and more under a more business school. That just was not going to be happening for me. And so I very quickly put those in a different bucket. And then the second part was when I was walking into private equity, for most places I was walking in, if not the only woman, then one of the only women. And one of the things that was really important to me is I didn't want to go into an environment that you had to really, the, the culture was going out and drinking and networking within that environment because that just wasn't going to be a place where I was going to be successful. And so I really wanted to pick a place that the rules were really clear. You just work hard, keep your head down. And it wasn't as a social place. And at the time, uh, that was Apollo. And they didn't make you go back to get your MBA. And it was a very kind of known for working hard and working hard kind of place. And it just really aligned with what I was looking for at the time. And and it aligned with the rules of what I was looking for. So you're now making the transition from kind of an advisor, right? So an M&A advisor, you're advising teams to investing in and buying and, and building businesses. So what was that transition like? And what did you like about it? What didn't you like? And and have that inform kind of the jumps you made after? The amazing part is you get access to all these different industries and you have to learn the industry pretty quickly and you get caught up on, you know, what is the market? What are the competitors? How do you win? What are the players? What's the future look like? The trends? How is it valued? And so you just really, really quickly get to learn an industry. And then obviously as a result, learn the company that you're potentially buying and its competitors. And there's just this learning that happens on this really expedited pace because there's a deal timeline to it. And that to me, the learning part was really, really exciting. The second part is you really get into the business. You start to understand different metrics from a sales perspective, from an operations perspective, from a financial perspective. And this is kind of the first time I was really getting kind of my hands into all of that operational kind of meat. 
And that was really exciting and, and lighting a lot of fires under me. And then you were also learning, especially from their perspective, Apollo played in the full capital structure of a company. And so it wasn't just equity. They were playing in the debt and investing in the debt. And so you just got to learn so much. You know, you think you kind of learn a little bit when you're in investment banking and then you show up and you realize, wow, I just know nothing. And so that was also really exciting. And then I also learned the things I wasn't really great at and the things that didn't really work for me. And I, I learned I was not a deal-oriented person. That stress of knowing that at any moment a deal could kind of happen and whatever you're, the dinner you're at or whatever you have planned just gets blown up. I don't mind working hard. I just learned that that spontaneity of it was just too anxiety-driven for me. And then I also learned I'm not great at the minute detail-orientedness of what it takes from that kind of role. And it was an incredible experience, learned a lot, but I just kept naturally gravitating towards the business side of things. And so we did this deal and it was a payment services deal. It was a carve out, which I think if anybody ever wants to go into operations and is on the investing side, doing a carve out is probably the best university that you could go to because it's an established company, but you have to basically rebuild every function in some way or stand it up. And it just teaches you what goes into all of that. And it's the the nuts and the bolts. And it is literally the best experience you can get. And so I was getting this while on the investing side. And this company was based in Puerto Rico. And it just became clear it needed more time. And so I ended up spending a lot of time in Puerto Rico and just got really bit with the bug and knew this was time to move over to the operation side. And I actually got an opportunity to join that company as an executive. But it just didn't make sense and didn't want to move to Puerto Rico at the time. And so I left Apollo at the time and decided it was time for me to go and try to find an operational role. Where and how did you find and make that jump? You're clearly good at getting out there and finding stuff. And so how how did this one come up and, and what was it? Yeah, definitely. And I, I think one of the things where people don't spend a lot of time talking about it. People spend a lot of time talking about how do you succeed in the job you're in or how do you improve on your strengths or whatever it is. But there's not a lot out there to talk about transitions and how do you make transitions? When do you know it's time to make a transition? What do you do when you're making the transition? And it is a lonely environment because it's not structured and it's not a ladder where you think you do A, then you do B, then you do C. And it's very much like a jungle gym. You kind of have to feel your way and and figure it out. And as a result, because it's so unstructured, it can get lonely and you get vulnerable and it's, you know, you don't know if there's necessarily the right end in sight. You're kind of feeling your way there. And I came across some amazing people and I tried some things along the way and I, for a short tenure for a few months, <laughs> thought I was going to help stand up a family office. And then I, I I got there and it just wasn't the right role and wasn't the right thing. And so I went on this journey to find a mentor in the operations side. And I probably spent about nine months looking for this person. And a lot of it was I knew what I knew, but I had no idea what I didn't even know. And I wanted to learn how to manage people, how to sign a deal, how to run operations. And you don't get that kind of insight on the investing side. So I started networking and meeting and interviewing a lot of CEOs and senior leaders and trying to find somebody that would appreciate my experience on the finance side, recognizing 
I was young, um, but had dog years of finance experience (laughs) and would appreciate that, but also be willing to kind of coach and mentor me as well. Right. And, you know, it's funny because I don't think people talk about this, but the first three months and I was in my later twenties, I guess, maybe mid late twenties. And especially as an immigrant, I left this really high paying job and it was considered, you know, a pretty attractive job to go and look for this elusive role of for this person that would kind of take the investment in me. And the first three months, you know, my family was supportive. By month six, they were basically like, time to go back to private equity. You tried this, <laughs> this isn't working. By month nine, they were just losing their mind. And, you know, I, I was too on some level, but I just knew that this had this had to work. This had to be the path forward because I just knew this was time for me to go do this. And I came across an amazing uh, human being. And he was um, an executive for 25 years at IBM, uh, was in a, a senior executive on the executive committee for HP, ended up running a Fortune 150 company and was exactly that kind of mentor that I was looking for and made a deal with him. And said, I, I will lend you my finance, my strategy, my passion, my speed, my hunger, my hard work. You will you'll get everything I, my hustle, everything I have to give you, I will work um, and give to you. But in response, I need to ask you really dumb questions and be vulnerable and learn. And he signed up for that. And every day at 7 a.m., I'd come with my notebook of questions. And, you know, I'm a writer. And so I, I, I write everything down. I, I need to visualize it to learn it. And I saw some of these notebooks and sometimes you look at your old stuff and you're just horrified by some of the things that you would ask. And you just really realize that, you know, there's, there's no way to skip this whole experience and learning curve without just going through it. And I would ask him, how do you email clients? How, what, how do you think about the strategy of a deal? How do you manage people? How do you uh, you know, go through kind of office politics because no matter what, there's always office politics and corporate politics is very, very different than finance politics. And so it's just, you just keep learning and every day would show up. And, you know, by the end of the four or five years, the questions were really different. We were signing, you know, $20 million a year deals and the questions were of a very different nature. And, um, you know, it's just interesting to see that path, but it, it was an incredible investment on his side, but you know, I, I was the CFO. I, I, I did my end of it for him, but to be honest, um, it still was a, a really big deal for him to take the time. In many conversations I've had or listened to how important someone just being willing to take a bet on someone else is to, to many people and to both sides of the equation. So it's, it's, uh, I appreciate you sharing that. It's always very impactful to hear those sorts of stories. And it's good. I mean, clearly it was a good investment on his part in you and, and vice versa. So it's cool to hear that. Yeah. And I've had a lot of success with that as well in reverse of just people I've been able to find within an organization and promote and help put them into seats of accountability and for them to be able to do what they're meant to do. And sometimes, you know, it's funny, I, I think there's a really interesting difference sometimes from a gender perspective in that a lot of times, and there's a lot of research out this where guys in many cases will just raise their hand before they're ready to do that and say, Hey, I'll take a leap. I can do this. I'll figure it out. 
and women are a lot more hesitant on that. And one of the things that I have just found is finding people that will kind of give you that push or will take that kind of jump with you. And I have been successful in in doing that with my teams, mostly because I've seen how people have done it with me. And it's a great source of finding amazing, talented people. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, totally. Let's take the leap to career builder then and and your role there. And certainly you had a a number of people there that you mentored, but I think just the business itself is in the business of helping people find spots where they can grow and flourish and helping companies do that same thing. During a, and I'm sure we'll get to this, like a very uh, unique time to be building and operating that business. So can you give a little bit about how that opportunity came about? You know, I think many people know what that business is, but just, you know, what the business does and then... The business is inherently matchmaking between employers and potential candidates at a really basic level. And one of the things that makes it a successful business is the algorithm that does that matching. How good is it to be able to say, based on your skill set, you would be a great fit for this role. And then on the business side is how do we make sure that we have as many of the inventory of roles that are out there and as many candidates on the supply side who give it or vice versa, depending how you're looking at it, to give it the best opportunity to get matched. And so it it is a really amazing business. And one of the things that was so special about it is, you know, I shared with you how important that first job that my dad got was for our family. And it felt really good working on something where you were helping employ people at the end of the day, that you were finding a match between somebody looking for a job and somebody wanting to fill a job. And so it was a pretty satisfying feeling to, to be not only working hard, but working for something that did good. I think that's awesome, by the way. And there's so many um, areas where you as a person in your journey is kind of like full circle or, you know, one part rhymes with the other. But I, I love how you brought uh, in kind of your dad's initial role and, and job here in the U.S. Can you tell us about how that career builder? So you're were you initially brought in as CEO or did you uh, come in on the executive team and work into that? And then can you talk about managing that business in an environment where some people wanted to work, some people didn't, you know, lots of jobs were turning over that, you know, the managing that business through a very tumultuous time and, you know, the pandemic and COVID and all that sort of thing. So I originally came in as president and COO and then got promoted to CEO. and. Also, there's just so much going in within the business because the company had bought several different software businesses that we were integrating to create one platform. We were transitioning as a company from transactional to a a SaaS software business. And so there was a lot of internal transformation that was happening within a world that was going through a transformation within having to then also keep your own culture and team kind of focused on on what you needed as a company to get done. And so there was a lot of different uh, dynamics happening. And especially for a first-time CEO, it's a lot going on. And the biggest kind of lesson learned or the biggest way of how we kind of managed through a lot of it was just really focusing on the team and getting the right team in place. And the team is a really magical, magical thing that what one person 
has no ability to really get done or it feels so unfathomable to obtain when you put a group of people together with a common goal and create an environment that's safe that they can discuss and figure out how to get there, this magic happens that the impossible becomes possible. And that comes across in everything, whether you're battling kind of outside forces that you're working through, internal forces, transformations, or goals you're trying to achieve. And I think the biggest thing that I really got to see again is just the the power of what a team dynamic can achieve. How did you think about, because you you kind of were part of the team and then you led the team and then you probably formed the team over time. How how did you think about the, you know, for a business that was in transition, what was the right team for and, you know, make up for that business at that time? How did you kind of think about that aspect of things? Um, and you, and you, you, you mentioned it, but it changed over time because the needs and the priorities of what was necessary in kind of the, the first inning, the middle and the end really changed and the skill set of the people that you needed and the experience set that you needed to bring also changed. And, you know, as a leader, you're also really trying to figure out your own voice, especially there's, you know, I think a difference between being a president and a CEO of a company of just being number one, it's just a different kind of pressure and it's just a different level of ownership. And you are really forced to find and identify your voice. And, you know, for a while in the beginning, I kind of really appreciated and respected the leadership style of my mentor. And one of the things I realized is that my style could not be his. You know, I was a young female. It just would not work the same way. And what made him great and what worked for him just wasn't going to be the same thing. And it takes a minute to step into your own voice and to find it and to really come into your own style and lean into what your personal strengths are and not kind of someone else's and, and mirror what you see others kind of develop your own. And so, you know, there's definitely mistakes that I made along the way. But when you're thinking about a team, you're thinking, what are the problems that you need to solve? And then what are the strengths that you have? And what are the gaps that you're filling for? And so as strategy and the evolution of businesses change in the environments of what you're doing, those pieces might shift around. And that doesn't mean that a person that was a great player before is now a bad player. It just means that their skill set, whether you sold that business that it was really helpful with, or the industry dynamics changed, or the competitive landscape changed, or you know, the board wants a different strategy or go into a different direction, their strengths are no longer as necessary. And so you're now looking for somebody else to kind of plug the gaps that that need to get filled. And so it is this continuous evolution. And you really have to hopefully find people that can develop and grow and, and have those with those experiences within them that they can kind of develop and move with the business. And sometimes somebody played an amazing role for a period of time and it's, you know, the right thing is for them to find their next amazing role and it just might not be within the business. And so I I think there's a lot of hard conversations and also good conversations, but they, the more transparent and direct and open you can be, I think it just benefits the team and it benefits that person because every single person wants to be in a seat where they feel like they're adding value and they're maximizing their strengths. Can you, if you're willing to share for yourself, you know, something that either or, you know, what did you learn about yourself? How did you grow? Where are your strengths and weaknesses? Can you describe kind of yourself and your personal evolution as a leader, you know, in that business 
over that part of the journey? Yeah. And this one's kind of a throwaway, but everyone talks about it, but you just realize how important it is. And, you know, I thought I was doing it, but there's always opportunity for more and it's communication and being a invisible communication. And I think one of the things that really pushed the limits of that is, you know, I could no longer walk the floors. I could no longer just jump into meetings. I could no longer just do all hands calls at meetings and see people. When the world became virtual across all the countries we were operating, it had to come in a very different flavor. And for me, that was just communicating and being visible, whether it was just keeping my video on at all times. Uh, when I was on a call, it doesn't mean others had to, but for me, that was important. We had a weekly all hands global call that was always on the calendar. I mean, we moved it maybe once or twice over the course of several years, but really kept it there. And it was just important that the strategy and the message of what we're doing was being communicated, not only by my team, but also by me. The second thing is, is probably vulnerability and transparency. I think, you know, with being a young female executive and you know, you're surrounded, especially where I was coming up, mostly by men and watching how they lead and how they operate. Vulnerability wasn't something that was visible and it wasn't really <laughs> considered a positive. And one of the things that I learned is for me, that's who I am. You can be kind and still be somebody who's very goal driven and will find a way to hit the the goal and will work with a team and is is hard working and those can be two things that exist at the same time and then one does not take away from the other especially in a leadership role you know on a you know stock exchange floor or you know in an investment banking bullpen vulnerability may not be perceived the way you or I would want, but I do think it's in a leadership role, it's actually, you know, a potentially very powerful skill to have, you know, or comfort zone to bring, especially uh, when it is, you know, in many instances differentiated from other leadership styles. So that's, that's my supposition, but I'd, I, I wonder, or I'd, I'd ask you, have you found that to be the case, at least relative to prior environments? Yeah. And I think also for me, one of the things that I learned is in the beginning, so much of my style was emulated by, you know, the mentors I would have. And I just would see that the things that they would do, and then I would do it and it would just get perceived negatively. And it just wasn't the best way for me to motivate my team and the best way for me to get the right environment going. And I kind of was really forced to kind of pivot and find it. And there isn't, again, a map to say, this is how you should do things. You kind of have to just find a way that's very um, authentic to you. And it's a, it's a very vulnerable feeling of being authentic because you lose kind of this coat of arms of, okay, well, this is what it should be. And this is how it should act. And you kind of really learn the, okay, well, this is what is right for me. And this is how I can get it done. And along the way, you know, you, you make mistakes and you figure it out and, you, you see people respond and react. And then as that changes, you get more and more comfortable with saying, okay, this is a path that makes more sense for me. For example, you know, there's times where I'm wrong and I've never really had many leaders that would come out and say, you know, through, through my various kind of careers to say, oh, I made a mistake here. And it was always kind of viewed as you just don't do that. And I make a lot of mistakes. <laughs> you go in a direction, you try it, it doesn't work. 
sometimes it's entirely my fault or sometimes I pushed too hard or sometimes I didn't push enough or I wanted to go left and the team wanted to go right and they ended up being right, you know? And so showing up and saying, hey guys, I messed up. Here's what I did wrong. Let's fix it. And just that human aspect of it, it it also gave them a safety of being wrong, which is what you want. You want your team to make mistakes and you you want them to fail because that creates a safe environment to push the boundaries because you can never get to greatness if you don't kind of go through some of those uncomfortable moments. And the only way to be comfortable in the uncomfortable is if you have the safety that you feel like you're in a place where you can't make mistakes. And the easiest way to create that environment is show that you make them yourself. Yeah. Well, that gives me hope that I'd be a great leader because I make a ton of mistakes. So <laughs> that's a great kind of note to end on. Thank you for sharing that. Before we we end, I, I ask a kind of two-part question of every guest. I call it the take a penny, leave a penny dish at like a gas station. But the first question is to leave something. So, you know, for the community, what is something that you've found in your career, either an insight or a quote or a book or a trick that, or a habit that has, you know, been impactful for you. And then the second will be kind of the take a penny. What can our community do for you? It's a little bit hokey, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on what, what your leave a penny would be. What kind of thought or trick or piece of advice would you share? For leave a penny, I would say, you know, there's a lot of great books and a lot of great things out there and lots of great advice to get. I think for me personally, one of the things that's really resonated with, with me is, and you know, I live it every day and and some days it, it doesn't feel great. And some days it does. And it's kind of really focusing the two things that have helped me has been just ignorance and persistence. And those two combined is just a really magic combination of sometimes you just don't know what you shouldn't be doing, or you don't know that it's not the quote unquote appropriate thing, but you just kind of push the boundaries and do it. And then the persistence is it's really easy for people to say no to you. And I'm just not a big believer. No, you're either asking the wrong person or you're asking the wrong question. And so how do you just be really persistent to what it is that you want to get to? Um, and that doesn't mean just you knock don't on hear the door. you don't listen. Yeah, you just keep knocking knock on, on the, the door. door. Send the email. Send an email, yeah. The worst thing that can happen is no one responds. So that's that's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. What would be your take, Penny? How can you know I or folks that listen or are in kind of our community be helpful to you? Um, I think one of the things that I have just been able to see and been the beneficiary and been able to kind of do in my career is I'm a big believer in mirroring the markets you serve and creating diverse teams and have been lucky enough that I've had kind of 50-50 female, male, and really diverse um, demographic and ethnic teams and socioeconomic teams. And one of the things that I would you and anybody else is to kind of push the boundaries of what's considered the right hire or the right fit and really understand the underlying outcomes that you're trying to solve for and try to hire people based on the outcomes you want to drive and not judge a book so much by the cover by its cover because one of the ways that you effectuate change is by not doing the things that we've been doing the same way for decades but thinking a little outside the box and really taking the time to understand someone's skill set and can they deliver these outcomes instead of how they have they done the exact role before. And I think the more of us that are pushing those boundaries, the more diversity we'll have at the table, which will lead to amazing thoughts and 
investments and innovation. And it's kind of the only way you keep pushing things forward. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for sharing. I've, I, uh, I think we've, I was doing the math in the back of my head. We, I think we've known each other for over 15 years now. That might date us a little bit, but or close, close to it. And I've learned a lot more about you in the last hour or so. So I appreciate you taking the time and I appreciate you sharing. It's been a pleasure and exciting to see what you're doing here, Jory. Thanks everyone for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the episode. To join the Built to Outlast community and access episodes, show notes, and other community resources, please visit builttooutlast.com. If you have or know a business that may be sold and care who the buyer is or want to build a business and care who you do it with, please visit enduring.co to learn more about us, our long-term approach, and our holding company. 